Dave, we're here in Harrogate at the Conference Centre for the Thought Bubble Festival, mm. which is this massive comic book festival. Mm. I haven't seen any tie-ins with 60s classic television. It's, I think it's really interesting. I mean, there are some vintage comic stalls here, uh, and kind of like there's, there's fewer than there used to be, because obviously we've got, we have a new generation of, of comic artists and graphic artists coming through. Uh, and it's that thing of mm, maybe it's doing a little bit of digging as to see whether, you know, the saint, who was a hugely popular character, ever had that... Um, that transition into you know either newspaper strips or strip cartoons. So obviously James Bond was was very popular, you know as a, a as a as a comic strip. Well, there was the same comic strip, and I'm trying to remember because Leslie Charteris did have experience. Mm. Was it Agent X Nine? Oh right, okay, yeah. He took over writing that from Dashiell Hammett. <gasps> you know. What better gig could you have? <laughs> Get him to do it. And then he started writing a Saint comic strip. And from my limited knowledge, and we'll talk about this more, mm. but there were a series of artists, and I think it, this happened during the 50s. And the initial artist, I think the Saint was mm. probably how you'd expect to see him. The new artist gave him a beard. Ah, you see, that's, that's kind of wrong, because... If we imagine Roger Moore with a beard, we only have to think of um, North Sea Hijack, a.k.a. Fawkes, a.k.a. Esther, Ruth and Jennifer, um, in which he is an um, underwater aquatic adventurer. Um, and he has a beard in that, and it just doesn't look right. No, it never works for Roger, no, does it? No. Having decided that Rog is the only person ever really could play the saint mm. properly putting him in a beard isn't right even if it's in one of his disguises yeah even if he's, he's doing you know he's playing like a Texan millionaire or um, a Bolivian banker or, or something like that yeah kind of might make sense but no not the only disguise Rog needs is an accent and a pair of glasses yes yeah usually if there were to be a comic book mm. for a classic cult TV series between the series crisis 1956 to 1974 the three day week which one would you like to see uh well i remember um the persuaders did used to be a tv comic strip in um maybe it might have been looking or or tv comic uh, but yeah the persuaders was was done as a uh, a strip cartoon and one of the things you, you have to remember with, with strip cartoons based on TV series is that kind of facial copywriting. So are they Lord Brett Sinclair and Danny Wilde or is it, hey, it's Tony Curtis and Roger Moore? You know, that idea of can they do facial representations because that was the problem they had when they did the TV cartoon series of the real Ghostbusters. They couldn't do them based on Bill Murray, Harold Ramis and, and Dan Aykroyd. Yes, that's interesting. I mean, there were Avengers comic strips and they were based on Patrick McNeil mm. and uh, Diana Rick. Not necessarily terribly well done, I have to admit. Yeah, um, because if you've got that template to work with, you should be able to, to kind of like be able to fill it in, really. 
Do you remember the? I can't remember if it was TV Twenty One or TV Comic. They had a Doctor Who comic strip. Yes, yeah, they did, and they. Uh, I remember when it was um, John Pertwee. Yeah, John Pertwee, because obviously his hair was very easy to draw. I remember being extraordinarily disappointed by one of the. They had a series of challenges to get through. Yeah, and of course the challenge would always be the cliffhanger and I think it was John Pertra's doctor who had a riddle to solve and he had to talk into an intercom otherwise they would be obliterated (gasps) and I'm thinking why how's he going to get out of this one and at the beginning of the next one it says the doctor whispered a hurried answer into the intercom and then it was all smiles. Oh no! You see, I I want to know what that answer is. Yeah, I th- I, th- I think that was a bit of a cheat. So short changed. Um, it's not one of the things you, you couldn't really do that in on TV, could you? You'd have no. to have something. Yes, it's. Um, it always reminds me of the ending of the Sherlock Holmes film, um, A Study in Terror, with John Neville playing Sherlock Holmes, and there is a wildly burning building um, at the end in which he is trapped along with the psychopathic killer uh, and it then just cuts to a scene where he's talking to Watson who's writing down the story uh, and he said but Holmes how did you escape uh, and he says well Watson you always know my reputation for close escapes he's going yeah but that's really not telling me how you got out of a burning of a locked burning room with a psychopath in it should that ever happen to you it would be really useful information yeah kind of just I don't know know if any Sherlock Holmes has told me oh what I've let down yeah that's a bit of a cheat isn't it it is yeah well we'll we'll talk more about the saint basically we'll be reciting Wikipedia Mm. and maybe debating other strips that uh, might have happened of course there never was a TV series of Modesty Blaze I think there should have been yes um, because that was quite an interesting uh, comic strip great lost comic strips from lost TV series yes those ones where you think crikey I never knew there was a kind of like a comic strip based on that or maybe the other way you know the other way around a TV series or film based on a, uh, a comic strip On that cliffhanger, we'll stop recording. Hello and welcome to Roast Into Black and White Television with me, Guy Morgan, and my co-host, David Newell. This is the Showcase Edition, and as you've heard, we're exploring the links between TV series and comics and graphic novels, and that includes the inevitable annuals for said TV series. Did you um, look at any of those links I sent you? I did, yes. I looked at the um, pictures of the very sh- that very short Saint story. <laughs> yes, I mean, I was quite intrigued by that because reading through those blogs, there was a thing about Bootsy and Snudge, mm-hmm. which is beyond even my lifetime. I just remember my grandparents talking about it, which comes out of the army game, I think. And there was a Bootsy and Snudge cartoon. They weren't allowed at the time to use the army game, but they did a deal with the actors for their facial representation rights. Okay, yeah. And I assume the same thing must have happened with our Rog. 
Um, like I said, that I remember there used to be a Persuaders um, comic strip, and they had like the the, the look of Tony Curtis and, and Roger Moore. And I suppose as a youngster, if you were if you were reading a comic strip, you would expect them to look like the people that you've you've seen on TV. So you know, an Avengers one, you would expect Diana Rigg and, and, and Patrick McNee. If you had um, the prisoner, you know, you would expect Patrick McGowan rather than someone who you think, well, I don't know who this is. Oh, oh Danger Man. I can't, I can't remember if I've actually seen a Danger Man comic strip. There's certainly some uh, cards. There's certainly Danger Man annuals. Certainly, you know, a lot of TV series, uh, very strangely and bizarrely, would have like an annual um, printed. And sometimes there would be comic strip formats in there or... or like short stories and usually um, a game mm. uh, and other bits. Well, bits the, and, and the girl from Uncle, which I I bought, April Dancer, <laughs> April Dancer, and uh, Noel Harrison's character, um, they both look vaguely like them. And Noel Harrison, it's it's not too bad a likeness, I suppose. Now there's a mixture of stories, there's a mixture of comic strips. Um, but because it's the girl from Uncle, there's a mixture of recipes and do-it-yourself fashion. How useful and practical. <laughs> it is. I don't believe Ilya Kuryakin and Napoleon Solo would have been telling you to how to make um, like a fruit compote or anything like that. No, no. Uh, I suspect that they probably have... Uh, I can't remember if I've seen a man from Uncle Annual, but I, I suspect... Oh, there's, that... there's loads. There's, there's, you know, there's loads um, out there. Um, I mean, you know, you would have TV series which you just think, oh right, okay. And and sometimes the only likeness of of the snow would be would be depicted on the front. So if you had, say, like Daktari or Cheyenne or or something like that, and and usually it would be, uh, you know, series of an of an American uh, American background. Although when when annuals kind of tail end of the 60s and the mid to late 70s, which I suppose is our wheelhouse, mm. uh, you would have TV series. You know, you, you would imagine in a in a pitch meeting, someone going, you know what? I think we should do a banana splits annual. Okay, let's do one, or a Sweeney um, annual. And you've got that oddity then of pitching something which is designed at younger audiences. For a TV series which was going out after nine o'clock. <laughs> yes, I can imagine that it would be quite difficult to do a Sweeney annual that really reflected the TV series. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, as my brother used to say, providing they've got a picture of John Thor on the front that looks like he's got an upset stomach, then it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Complete the following <laughs> phrases. You're nicked, you... <laughs> But yeah, you would also have those like those little games inside that you were in sometimes a puzzle page as well. Um, I imagine maybe a Sweeney one would just have Cockney rhyming slang that you had to to try and figure out what it what it was, what it really means. Yeah. Mm. So we're talking about TV series from the sixties and early seventies and comic strips or their representation in graphic form. Let's put it that mm. way. And we are indebted to the blog created by Lou Stringer, who is 
an artist in his own right and for several years uh, he had a blog which was about classic comics uh, and in particular stuff to do with uh, television and he wrapped that up in 2019 to concentrate on his own work and you can find him uh, he's Lou Stringer is L-E-W Stringer, all one word, dot blogspot dot com. So we give him a, a plug because he's put in all the hard yards about this. And he's got loads on there, hasn't he? You know, and it's it's refreshing to see some of them, which, you know, you realise, crikey, yes, there was a um, TV 21. There was a warrior. And in fact, warrior. Um, on my way home on Sunday evening from Thought Bubble, uh, there were two um, of the the artists who were guests there. I didn't get their names, but they sat opposite me. Uh, and what was quite lovely is that you, you got the idea that they all the artists all sort of know one another. You know, they all know where one another lives. You all pop around one another's houses. Um, and they were saying that some one of their uh, chunk was trying to collect all the back copies of Warrior Comic, which is mentioned on the stringers. Uh, website and and some of uh, of them you know would be really 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 like thrilling um, and some characters prove more popular so like Lady Penelope for example kind of like 60s fashion icon um, a strong feminist don't know she appears to live on her own and be independently wealthy yes um, I'm not quite sure how independently wealthy because I I always suspected that. One of the reasons why she may have had to indulge in intrigue was that she was a bit cash-strapped at times and may have been subbed by the Tracys. Right, okay, like subcontracted in the UK? Yeah, yeah, basically. So uh, as an agent, I mean, obviously she could afford the roles with all its various gadgets. And I remember a comic strip... Well, it might have been TV comic or it could have been TV 21 where they had Lady Penelope and people were laying siege to her house and she had all sorts <laughs> of booby traps, including um, kind of elephant pits in the garden that people <laughs> fell into, um, which I thought was quite intriguing and thinking, well, who'd you get to build that? Marker. Um, yeah, possibly. He might have needed some help from the size of the elephant pits, I must admit. <laughs> I remember Stingray comic strips they may have been from the annual yeah but also from the comic which i think from the style might have been frank bellamy it was kind of slightly oh, angular but very colorful photogravure print mm. and there were some aliens and it involved phones knowing a smattering of cantonese i just remember that phrase we had a chinese cook and i have a smattering of cantonese I thought, oh, that's quite interesting. Yes, Jerry Anderson obviously had a huge interest in promoting stuff through the comic strips and licensing mm -hmm. and, and, and things like that. So from your childhood, Dave, what were the comics that you remember? I, uh, obviously, Roy of the Rovers or the Tiger, I suppose, which, which seemed to have uh, characters in that which you were just kind of, begging and hoping against hope would get made into a TV series. Um, who wouldn't want to go and see Johnny Cougar? 
um, at the cinema, or um, alongside his his um, very hippie like sidekick Splash Gordon. Uh, who wouldn't want to see Skid Solo, um, or perhaps a more working class venture uh, would be something like Billy's Boots. But there seemed to be you know, a, a, a wide variety of uh, comics or options of buying comics, you know, for two or three p, um, depending on what sort of mood you were in. So if you wanted, you know, granite jawed action, you could get the Victor, and that would be all World War Two kind kind of stuff. Uh, if you just wanted knockabout fun and some jokes to share in the schoolyard, it would be, um, you know, Dandy Beano, Wisdom Chips, uh, those things. And then it's it's only perhaps in, in the, the later or mid part of the 70s uh, when there were, were comics which were um, a bit gory, things like Action, which used to have the um, the Killer Shark, Hookjaw, and Hellman of the Tank Corps. Uh, and Magnum, who was a, a super spy, who shot first, shot again, shot again, and then asked questions. <laughs> yes. I'm not quite sure how useful that is as an interrogation technique. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all right. I always remember there was one very grim story where um, uh, someone was melted um, in a, a shower of acid. They disconnected the water pipe and then put um, sh- uh, um, a, a connection to, to an acid tank. The person got washed away, dissolved. Then they reconnected the hot water, washed away whatever bits and pieces left. And the only thing left, the bottom, the plug hole, was a gold ring. Yes. Well, this was for gr- kids. Yes. What age group do you think this was for? Maybe kind of mid-teens, something, possibly. Obviously, you had, um, you know, kind of like still like Marvel and DC, um, and Marvel and DC were slightly more accessible because in some instances they'd had been made into TV series. So you had, you know, you'd have Batman and Green Hornet. And Marvel kind of struggled, although, again, mid to late 70s there was a, a very brief spider-man tv series uh, and the um, the incredible hulk with the saddest music of all <laughs> yes i really struggled with the hulk as a character basically <laughs> i wasn't quite sure what his motivation was and he was kind of a bit like the fugitive but with anger management problems <laughs> um it's i mean it's really strange if you I think during the 70s, and then I mean, we were talking about this the other week, um, about, about Star Wars coming along, and, and maybe up until that point, there, there seemed to be a very clear delineation between um, programs and books and comics that were, were designated as being for the younger folk, usually anyone under 21, and then there would be a separate world of... TV series of books and of films for people over 21. Uh, and then when Star Wars came along, as my friend Mark Holroyd would say, Dave, it's for kids. Uh, it's, it seemed to, to cross that barrier of, of being, maybe this is, this is something, you know, for, for everyone. 
and then from thence forward it seemed to be um stuff which was childlike but adult friendly mm, and that's that's in the kind of anglophone sphere isn't it because obviously mm. there's manga and yes, in yeah. east asia reading comic books because there's that huge tradition of um woodcuts and drawings and monsters and the supernatural then leading into manga and anime but also on the continent the european continent uh, for mm. our worldwide listeners there's the bon dessiné which is i suppose you could have things like tintin which is of course belgian yeah. um, um still going strong you know next time you pop over to italy pick up the latest issue danger diabolic yes yeah the fumetti are absolutely huge and has twice uh, given spin-offs one back in uh, the late 60s and one just a couple of years ago yeah it's it's really weird a couple of um a couple of years ago we'd gone out for a meal in aquaviva pacino um which is a small mountain top town near the small mountain top town where my brother lives and we had some time to kill before we went to la paisana which is a lovely restaurant and i know that this sounds a little strange but in the dungeons of of the town hall which are actually quite nice dungeons uh, they had um, an art exhibition on of original graphic art from from Danger Diabolic, and they had one of the original artists there as well. Um, a guy in a very cool jacket, very thin lapels, and a Danger Diabolic illustrated tie. And he was doing the introduction, and he was talking about how how the work came about. And then, you know, we looked around that, and thought, oh, wow, this is this really fascinating. Uh, and then we went for our meal in paisana and then who should rock up later on but all the crew all the group from uh, from the danger diabolic exhibition and and again only a few few miles away on on the coast at uh at grotta mare there is a, a museum of the graphic image of, of the comic image and uh, again uh, i remember going and having a having a natter just about because they amazingly had heard of thought bubble uh, which was resonated quite nice um and they had a load of like original graphic um art art on display so yeah you know you've still got ones going very very strongly there's also a western one which is very popular in italy i can't, I can't remember which one yeah. that is i mean we were in Lucca just before the i think it's the biggest comics festival in europe yeah. um, and to give people some idea if they don't know what york is like Lucca is this medieval stroke renaissance town it has these fantastic fortification walls which uh, houses the old city and if you walk around these walls uh, it's about two or three miles they were setting up tents along these walls so pretty much all the way in there were kind of massive tents in the city square there was exhibitions there's people starting to walk around uh, in costumes and you cannot get a room for love nor money in that kind of seven or eight days that it that it's on obviously we were there just before we'd just scraped in 
purely by chance, but there were already exhibitions on. And it was uh, just astonishing the, the way people were obsessed by the graphic novel, uh, etc. And when you walk into an Italian bookstore, as you know, I mean, th there'll be loads of things that you can quite easily pick up. If you walk into Travelling Man in York or Leeds, for example, All right, yeah, yeah. apart from manga, you won't find anything that isn't in English. But mm. you'll find a huge range of stuff in uh, both France um, and Italy that um, obviously there might be in Italian or French, but there'll also be in English and, uh, and stuff like that, or there'll be translations. And so it's, it's really much more widely accepted in Europe. Um, yeah, I suppose if you look um, France, you've got Asterix. Yes, yeah. Um, and that is so much part of the national identity and basically mm -hmm. the stroppy anarchic independent rebellious <laughs> streak in the french as opposed to the romans which i think probably not only represent the romans but also represent the rather authoritarian uh, sticklers for the rules bureaucratic aspect of the french do they represent the treaty of rome um, for the initial installation of the of the European common market. Is that what they represent? Or are we reading too much into it? I'm, I think it's possible that Asterix might actually predate, but they're, they're round about yes. the same time. A bit like Jeux Sans Frontières, and of which General de Gaulle was uh, a big fan, apparently, or at least the French version. Um, and, of course, Eurovision. Mm. And, like... A lot of things like European football and the World Cup, the UK and its attendant nations were a little late to the party. Whether or not they'll stay in like they did with the common market, we don't know. Another thing that I'd like to talk about when we talk about comic strips is not just the, the subject matter, the fact that you can lift a set of characters, a um, premise into mm. a comic strip is that there's obviously a difference between 48 minutes, if it's a commercial um, hour, or 50 minutes if it's um, a BBC hour. I mean, they're, they're pretty much the same uh, back in the 60s and 70s. You've got quite a lot of uh, dialogue there and a bit of action, one would hope, probably more on ITV than on the BBC. But in that saint, it's two pages, isn't it? On the, the two pages, it is. That's example. I think one panel. Yeah, twenty-one panels, and there is one trope there that I noticed in particular, <laughs> which is. Oh, I don't. Well, wait a minute. Sorry. Um. Oh, there's a fight. It's, it's, uh... it's not just the fight. It's the inciting moment. What happens to the saint's old friend? Oh, no, he doesn't die, does he? Oh, no. Yes. So, oh, what? Someone's sawn through his petrol pipe in his plane, and uh, the saint is obviously bent on finding out who's responsible. But he does extract revenge. He does He does track him down. I know you said it's like 21 panels, but most of like the last six or seven, well, actually doesn't, I would say, is just physical action. Yeah, yeah. He gets shot at. He... Rugby tackles his would-be assailant, forces him to drive him to the lair, 
and then has a punch up. One, two, he just throws three, out, he four. throws like a big spanner at him. Yeah, there's all the sort of things that you would expect Ray Austin to get up to. There is some incisive dialogue as well during that fight um, with Ugg and Ah. Yes, which actually, to be fair, doesn't really feature too much in the TV series. No, and then it just ends with him just on the phone. And he's he's explaining, um, I guess the police will know where to pick up your pals. You won't be doing much flying in future, chum. I don't think. Yes, that um, double negative slightly confused me, I must admit. Yes. Simon, what are you doing? <laughs> so I'm quite intrigued by having been to Thought Bubble on so many occasions and toyed with the idea of um, trying to write a comic strip. Have you ever done that, Dave? Yes, yes, I have. Um, myself and Andy, while we are at uh, film school, we looked at uh, perhaps bringing in some extra money and we looked at the submissions process for Commando Comic is published by um, the Leviathan, that is DC Thompson. And we came up with HMS Matilda, and it is based on a partial true story, partially uh, true story, which is about the convoys that would go um, through kind of like the Baltic uh, to to take materials and arms over to, to Russia to arm them. More simpler days. Uh, and the idea is that it's it's a group of British people, uh, British soldiers who are taking some Matilda tanks over there. Uh, Matilda tanks are pretty good with their, their fearsome six-pounder gun. And uh, what happens is they they are it's a it's a game of hunter killer because there's a submarine after them, but there's also a spy on board as well. Eventually, what they 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 have to do is they have to use the um, the tanks as as artillery to attack a uh, German radio mass station on an isolated island in the Baltic. Uh, so loads of slam bang action, loads of cockneys, um, obviously out of their their geographic comfort zone. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was. I mean, we didn't have to draw it. What you do is it it gives you um, kind of like the formula of of how to do the panels, how to you know. Fit in your dialogue, your dialogue bubbles, your description, your scenic um, aspect. So yeah, you don't necessarily have to be a, a artist as such. Uh, but the thing is with with Commando comic now, whilst they still do some reprints of uh, you know, previous ones from the 60s, 70s, even 80s, uh, but they have to be a little bit careful so they don't come across as being a bit jingoistic, is what they have in it now is they have more modern stories. So it might be like set in Korea or sometimes in Falklands or sometimes in the desert. Uh, so it's not World War II stories. Yeah, unfortunately, HMS Matilda didn't get picked up. I know, it sounds like a cracking tale. So when you were putting that together, were you? what was the creative process behind it? Because it's obviously different from when you're writing a screenplay. It is, yeah. You, first of all, you know the number of pages that you can use. Mm. There's there's kind of like no no leeway with with that. Um, your first page and your last page they're usually just one big picture. So the, the first one is your setup with your your scrawling narrative long long ago in a galaxy far far away or that. And then at the end, it's where usually two blokes who have been enemies up until that point or, or had a bit of an argument are, are shaking hands. 
and it's all grins all round, even though they've faced the grimness of war. And then you you get told the maximum number of panels that you can have per page, uh, and how that panel is is composed. So, you know whether it's it's one with with no description on it and no dialogue. It might just be kind of like an action picture. And the formula you're given works quite well. It's much like, um, I mean, I, I don't know whether you were you were part of that merry band that had a go at writing for Family Affairs, Channel 5. So, and with, with that, again, you were given the same formula. So in terms of the episode length, in terms of the peak in the middle of the commercial break, yeah, A, B, C, and if you're lucky, D, storyline, and the number of characters and how they they sort of interact with one another and uh, you were just filling in the blanks really with dialogue blah 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 yeah um, but but with say hms matilda mm. you were inventing the whole story now obviously you've got yeah. the story arc is they set off yeah. they get there and in between there's a bit of during do and some unpleasantness there is yes there's the spies there's uh, all kinds of um shenanigans so yeah you you had to realize that there there would need to be a certain amount of action you know you, you couldn't necessarily have like an introspective wartime story you had to have there had to be intrigue a little bit of a surprise as to who the spy was on board the on board the boat Turns out it was the cook. I knew that because he put custard on me chips. Um, says says the, the the cockney gunnery sergeant. And you, know, you have to also realise that it is it is war. Uh, so there's, there's a, a, a that night, um, many a British sailor met a watery grave, um, just like a ship slowly going down because that's the hunter killer sub is is out there um thankfully because andrew has a phenomenal knowledge of tanks small arms fire and and insignia historically we didn't have to do a lot of research didn't have to do a lot of research and if i made something up if i overstepped the mark i was told in no uncertain terms <laughs> his knowledge of armored fighting vehicles is unparalleled. he was telling me the other day that bbc's new Sunday night slam bang action SAS rogue heroes. It has the wrong sort of tank, ruined. doesn't it? Well, no, he was almost ruined for him because they were leaping from a Dakota rather than a Wellington, which would have been more common. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's extended his why, expertise. Why BBC? <laughs> he's extended his expertise to aviation. Yes, I, I have heard that there is the wrong tank. That actually the, the right sort of tank would have been very difficult to get to Tunisia. And here's a geek point: there's the Western <laughs> Desert. Yes. Right, and there's Tunisia, and apparently they shot it in Tunisia. It's the wrong kind of desert. Oh how you would know i'm not entirely sure all i would advise is the next time you see andrew don't buy him a drink and get him started on the 1960s film the battle of the bulge <laughs> don't just don't go there don't oh. stop it stop that conversation mind you i could record it and we could have a whole different podcast really. oh no it'd be oh it'd be a nightmare living nightmare um looking at the saint two pager there are certain things that uh, don't appear. Obviously, it kicks off with the death of an old friend, which we've discussed in great detail before. 
he's gone to see his friend compete, so he's got a reason to be there. He's got a reason to pursue vengeance for uh, his dead friend and bring the uh, miscreants to justice. I'm trying to think of other things. He's not locked up in a cellar. There's no five foot, five foot four, five foot six blonde lady. In her mid-twenties. Yeah. No, and I, I suspect in a lot of these comics, there are very few women uh, involved. I mean, obviously in the Girl From Uncle annual, you would expect there to be a Girl From Uncle. In some of the Avengers, if not all of the Avengers graphic spin-offs, you would expect Mrs. Peel or Tara King or perhaps even Mrs. Gale. I suppose largely because they're aimed at small boys, they assume mm. that small boys aren't interested in members of the female sex, really. What's quite interesting, going back to what I, I said about the, the formula for H&S children, if you look at the same one, uh, they are very well packed with, with descriptive panels, very well packed with, with speech bubbles um, to get the plot moving along. First one, if you look at it, it's real, really dense first page. Um, and then it's only in the second half um, the leanest panel um, is is one where um, the saint just says, not so fast, chum. There's no explanation. It's just that one line of dialogue. But it's a very physical action. Like, like you said, like you rugby tackling. Um, and then for the rest of the scenes, we do get back down to, to more exposition and, and more um, dialogue back and forth. So there's actually very little uh, in the way of physical action. Uh, doing all the heavy lifting on the on the panels. It's a combination of text and uh, action, really, isn't it? So that they support each other. There's a massive amount of text on the first page, and there is it's really dense. And lots of portraits of Simon or Rog. That's all kind of set up, and I think the dialogue is probably creates a bit of tension and. Um, aggression when he goes to challenge the main suspect it's intriguing how you could but you just basically don't have any b c or d stories it's all kind of straight down the line it's all up front it's yet it's it's all up front um and what's i suppose what's quite interesting is when we've been talking about episodes of the saint is that some uh, saint episodes perhaps for the first 20 minutes or also are saint light mm. um but this this uh, strip cartoon seems to follow if you remember um our doctrine and our lesson when we were scripting for the bill is that you always have a policeman in every scene um and it seems as if you know you must have roger moore in every scene yes yeah, well you've probably paid him enough for his likeness <laughs> yes and actually looking at the the page again it pretty much has to look like him because they've got a photo of him by the title so yes yeah you can't really get away with someone who just looks a bit like roger moore when <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are you, are you, do you look like roger moore one of those people who would advertise in the back pages of the stage <laughs> who used to advertise as as looky likeys You've been listening to Rose Tinted Black and White Television, the showcase edition with me, Guy Morgan, and my co-host and expert and former comic 
strip writer, David Newell. In fact, there's nothing that you haven't done, is there? Oh, God, there's loads of things. There's, I mean, everyone thinks I'm really knowledgeable, but there's loads of things I don't know. I don't know how scoring works in tennis. <laughs> I don't know in the Batman theme tune, is it horns or is it voices? I don't know how women can walk with their arms folded and why anyone wanted to make Lethal Weapon 4. <laughs> yes, but creatively, you've written for puppets, you've written for oh, comics, yeah. um, <clears throat> written for radio, done screenplays. Yes, you are the go-to guy for the explanation of the creative process. <laughs> so that's David Newell. He's here all week. <laughs> that ends the showcase episode, which will appear on Buzzsprout shortly. Um... I'm still mulling about the benefits of Buzzsprout. We'll keep you posted uh, about that. But of course, everything else and the review shows, of which there'll be four shows that we're dealing with, they will appear on the Soundstage North SoundCloud channel, as will the missing deleted showcase episodes, because that's where we keep everything. So you can tune into that and uh, waste your life. We shall return as General MacArthur said. <laughs> <laughs>